welcome back, everybody. It's time once again for another episode of Living Hope. A weekly journey designed to provide hope, inspiration, and education for those living with pancreatic cancer. Sharing the real-life stories of those really affected by this deadly disease and how they deal with it on a daily basis. With our host, the host who knows the most, at least about this topic, Roberta Luna. Welcome. Thank you, Paul. I wouldn't say I know the most. I know a lot. And I, it's funny. I, I think I learn something new every day, it seems like. But I'm glad to be here, actually. And I apologize. We're running a little late. And it's because I was having technical difficulties. It's Roberta's fault. <laughs> I know. It's when in doubt, fault. just say it's Roberta's fault. <laughs> That's right. Fault. We'll just, well, I have broad shoulders. We'll just, I'll just <laughs> take the blame all the time. We'll let Paul off the hook. But anyway, happy to be here. And for some, if you're trying to watch on Facebook, apparently it's not working. So Go to octalkradio.biz and you can watch us on their YouTube or, channel. Or YouTube. Go to our YouTube yeah, channel. Yeah, go to the YouTube channel. I don't know that web, but that sounds good. Anyway, I'm sorry. <laughs> Let's get back to serious here. I'm happy to have back Sarah Banks from the Development Director on the Hirschberg Foundation team. She's been with Hirschberg since 2012. Today she's coming to share her personal journey, which I really appreciate because sometimes... You know, these conversations can be difficult, but I feel it's important to give a face to all these people that we've loved and have lost or that are still fighting the disease. So thank you, Sarah, for coming back and joining us. And please tell us about your mom. That's why you're here. Let's hear about your mom. I mean, I think anybody would say this, but my mom was amazing. (laughs) My mom was wonderful. She was raised in Iowa. She had four siblings. She was a registered nurse for 37 years two children, myself and my younger sister, Carmel, only by two years. (laughs) And we lived here in Los Angeles and she was a single mom, fantastic person, a caregiver to any and all of her loved ones. And I suppose passed that on to my sister and I. Thankfully, I'm sorry, you know, that you had to go through it, but I'm very thankful. We've known each other for a long time and I really cherish the friendship and just everything that you've done for for those of us that are affected by pancreatic cancer and for our families. So thank you very much for taking your personal journey and, and your pain and frustration, I'm sure, hurt and anger and putting it into something positive. I wish, you know, we could say more people do that. Um, you said your mom was a nurse. Did she have a specialty? Towards the end of her career, it was health education. So uh, she did a lot of teaching. But uh, when she was younger, I think she worked in the NICU and and other departments. But yeah, it was health education at the end. Well, I had one of my sons was in the NICU, not probably where your mom was, of course, but in the NICU. So those nurses are very cherished and really appreciate what they do for for us parents as well. Your mom was diagnosed in 2006, I believe. Yeah, 2006. Just a little while before Thanksgiving was when she got her Whipple. So Yeah, diagnosed towards the end of 2006, and she was a survivor for two and a half years. What type of symptoms did your mom have? She became extremely jaundiced. At the time, I actually was living in Washington, D.C., so I didn't really see the symptoms that were coming on. Uh, My sister had just moved back here recently, and by the time I came, after I received the call, she was orange and itchy and uncomfortable and uh it was it was pretty shocking when you say uncomfortable was it uncomfortable as far as pain or the itching the itching yeah Yeah, i think the itching 
Yeah, my mom had that, and we didn't correlate it. We didn't understand that that had anything to do with it. It just it didn't seem like that was a symptom. It would just seem kind of odd. But she had an extreme itching as well, and took a I mean, little I'm while. sure there were other. I'm sure there were other symptoms, but you know, I I really credit my sister. She was the one that was here in the very very beginning, and then I first appeared, you know, right before her surgery, and then came back the day of her surgery. So. The two of them were the ones that really went through uh, that initial phase of her being diagnosed. Do you know how long it took them to diagnose your mom? I don't think it took very long. I don't think it took very long. I know that it only took two weeks, thank goodness, for her to get in and get the Whipple. Um, but this was 14 years ago. You know, now they would consider different options. They wouldn't go necessarily straight for surgery. They might consider, you know, chemo first, but they jumped right in, so. Yeah, sometimes it, I think it varies on each doctor. I've heard from different people. Some of them, some doctors do the chemo first and then the Whipple. I think it depends maybe on the location of the tumor and what they're trying to, you know, trying to do before surgery. But I've heard others that said, no, they just jumped right in and did chemo after. Did your mom yeah. do chemo afterwards or? She did, she did. She did chemo afterwards It was, and it was pretty hard on her, on her body as it is for most people, but I don't know. I think 14 years ago is a long time. You know, the experiences that I hear from survivors today are very different than what I remember from back then. It's not necessarily about the chemo changing. Maybe it's about the doctors and the level of awareness and the amount of chemo that's given. But her very first day of chemo, we had to take her to the emergency room. So, you know, it just hit her really, really hard. You say, was it, did she, was she in more pain or sick or what was the reason going to ER? She just got sick. She wasn't feeling well. We had a lot of instances where she would become very dehydrated and just not respond well. Her doctor was Dr. Rosen and luckily, you know, he was able to get her on a regimen that, that worked for her and we would do chemo for a little while. She'd get a little bit of a break uh, when her numbers would go down and then she'd go back on chemo. So we... We always felt like she was living on chemo. Yeah, I, I know that feeling. Yeah, uh, yeah. So during the time that your mom, when she came off chemo, was she able to live, you know, a pretty much normal life or did she have to make some big changes because of the Whipple and, and the chemo? The Whipple caused significant changes, you know, that it affects your whole digestive system. I, I know that there are some people that don't have huge side effects, but you know, that's a massive surgery. And I think she was, she was in between seven to nine hours. She came out. And one of the first things I remember was, you know, us talking to the doctor and saying, okay, so what happens next? You know, what can she eat? What do we need to do? Like I said, she'd been a caregiver. And so my sister and I just had a million questions and we were ready to tackle this. And the doctor said, oh, you know, soon enough, she can have a cheeseburger or a hamburger. And <laughs> we oh. were like, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> I want to see this doctor. What's this doctor? <laughs> Send me to this doctor. <laughs> yeah, it was a surgeon at St. John's. So, I mean, that, and that's what I, that's what I mean when I say the differences between 14 years ago, although uh, I'm pretty sure there are probably doctors uh, in some areas that still don't quite get the gist of this and aren't as well informed and may still say things like that. And that's what we want to avoid. But there were a lot of digestive issues. Uh, she was on en enzymes and we went through 
you know, different phases of how to try that, you know, the dosages, do you open the capsule and sprinkle it on the food? Do you take it, you know, <laughs> all of those things. But it was, yeah, the surgery I think was extremely hard on her body. How long did it take her to recover from the surgery where she could kind of go back? I've heard from people it takes, you know, can take a few months. It can take a lot of months. Did she have a long time that she needed to recoup? You know, I, I don't remember specifically. My best guess would be, you know, a couple months or so. It was challenging because she had the surgery in November and it was before Thanksgiving. And so uh, I recall like, you know, we went to go see family for Thanksgiving and she couldn't eat any of the food, you know, and, and she was she was still uncomfortable and, you know, in pain. So, you know, that it takes, it's just a huge surgery, you know, it makes a big impact on the body. And, and I guess everyone's different in how quickly they recover, but, you know, I, I think it took her a little while. Yeah, I think it takes most people because I've heard them compare it to replumbing your system because, yeah. you know, they take everything out and they have to do some rewiring and then putting things back in place and whatnot. So, yeah, it can be yeah. very drastic. Did she figure out the, how to use the enzyme? Or, I mean, I'm still kind of playing with it. So, <laughs> yeah, was, you know? I'd say that was an ongoing that was an ongoing thing. You know, I think sometimes they helped and sometimes they didn't. And I don't know if it was because of the enzymes themselves, you know, there are issues with after the Whipple, like dumping syndrome and things like that, that I'm not really sure if enzymes can fix that, you know? So those things were still going on regardless. It was an on and off thing with food. And I, I never really felt like she was able to enjoy food as much uh, after that surgery. Yeah, it, it's one of those things you, like you say, I'm surprised to hear the doctor say about the cheeseburger, but it's, you know, something that you kind of have to pick and choose because some, I know for myself, some days I can eat something and have no problem at all. And then the next day I can eat maybe the same thing and it's not going to agree with me. So it's kind of like trying to pick and think, okay, do I want to go through what I know I'm going to go through? Is it going to be worth it or, or what? But yeah, like I yeah. said, I'm still trying to figure out the enzyme thing. And it's by the time, sometimes you take so many of them, you're full, you know, if you're taking the capsules and not, I think that's a great idea. Open the capsule and put it on the food. I'm not sure about the taste. I may have to try that sometime, but you know, now your mom being a nurse, was she able to go back to work after the Whipple or was that not something no. she wanted to do? No, she didn't. She didn't go back to work afterwards. I didn't feel like she was ever a hundred percent after that. She had, she had moments where she'd get some level of her energy back, but dehydration was a big issue for us maintaining her weight was a was also a big issue uh, we did tpn on and off for a while so um no she didn't she didn't return to work and uh my sister and i were with her full time so just trying to make sure that she kept moving and she was eating right and you know we were also just trying trying to do whatever we could to make sure that she beat the statistics and stayed alive because when she was diagnosed, I believe she was given six months. So two and a half years still is nowhere near long enough, but uh, it was significantly longer than, than she was told. And how was that two and a half years that she had? Ups and downs, ups and downs. I think that uh, because it was because it was such a long time ago, 
I remember when she was first diagnosed, looking up information and anything that I found, you know, it's just like we said, don't go and Google, you know, and and I was in DC and, you know, I didn't have access to her doctor right away. And I didn't, I couldn't get all the answers right away. And she didn't have all the answers right away. So of course I looked it up on the internet and found all of the, all of the scary things. It was a roller coaster of a ride, you know, when she was in good health, uh, we'd take a trip, we'd go to Hawaii or we'd go to Yosemite, but even then she'd have uh, dehydration issues and she'd be a little bit weaker and uh, just couldn't do as much. She was, she was very thin. She wasn't able to gain uh, her normal weight back. It was a challenge. Her being a nurse, did that bring on her suspicion that it might be pancreatic cancer or was she surprised by that? I don't know. I'm not sure what she what she thought in the beginning. To be honest, you know, when when that kind of diagnosis comes down and everybody it sounds a little selfish, but everybody kind of copes in their own way and you kind of go in your mind like what's going to happen, you know, like we we're of course taking care of her during the initial diagnosis, but I remember just thinking like what's going to happen to all of our lives? Like, how are we going to make this work? How are we going to, you know, how do we turn this around so that we can, things will go back to normal after her chemo? In my mind, because my grandmother had had ovarian cancer and I knew people who in my family who had had other cancers, I thought that even though I read what I read on the internet, somewhere in my mind, I still thought of it like, it's terrible to say, but like breast cancer. I thought she'll do her chemo, she'll recover, grow her hair back, everything will be fine, you know, and we'll go, go back to life as normal. But it was not that simple, not that simple at all. Definitely not. And I, and the feelings and things that you express, I don't consider that to be selfish. That's something I think normal that we all go through. Um, being on the caregiver side as well, as well as the patient side, it's something we think about is, and as the patient, we're wondering, okay, now what is my family going to do? Um, you know, that, but again, as the caregiver, it is, it's like, how do we get this back? How do we go back? And what is normal? It's, I think our normal changes from the moment you hear that you have pancreatic cancer or that you're telling somebody that you have this disease. I tell caregivers that all the time when, you know, when I'm talking to someone or I'm with, you know, a patient and a caregiver in whatever setting, I always kind of check in with the caregiver and say, how are you? And they start talking about their loved one and the patient and I say, but how are you? You know, how are, how are you doing? But I think it's also important to note that my mom was very young when she was diagnosed. And so I was 26 and my sister was 24 when she was diagnosed. So we stopped our lives of, you know, pursuing careers, figuring out where we were going, you know, at that age. And she was only 56. And so everything kind of hit pause and then we came home. And that's a very awkward age to be at where suddenly you kind of give up everything in your own life and focus on someone else's, you know, that role reversal happens, I think. A lot of people experience that maybe as their parent is aging, you know, having to take care of a parent. But at 24 and 26, I mean, we were just getting started. So it did feel a little bit selfish at times. You know, we were kind of grieving what was happening with her, but also grieving, 
I would say I was grieving the life that I was losing. And again, I don't think that's selfish. I think that is, I mean, I can relate because I can say I felt the same way. And, you know, I was on both sides of the fence being the caregiver and the patient. So yeah. I remember feeling that way and thinking, you know, again, that I was being selfish, but I, I really don't think it is. And to be able to come out and talk about those feelings, it's very important because our caregivers are so important to us. I think, yeah. you know, we rely on you guys so much um, that even when we're trying to be independent and trying to do it on our own, I really couldn't have done as much as I have done without my husband and my boys, you know, being the caregivers and being there for me. I hate to even call them caregivers, but the fact is they were there for me, so they were caring for me. It was just in a little bit different way, I think, than a lot of us do for our parents, but um, it's a hard situation. Yeah, It's conflicting. I think a lot of the feelings with being a caregiver, whether it's full-time, part-time, you know, or you're just checking in on the person, you know, on a weekly basis, there are a lot of conflicting feelings. Even, even when I say now, you know, even when I express my feelings now, it still doesn't cover everything. You know, I was willing to do whatever I could, but in the beginning, I, like I said, I really thought everything was going to go back to normal. I wasn't thinking about, oh, I got to get rid of my apartment, sell all my furniture, and I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm moving back home at 26 years old. And then suddenly you think, I'm fully in this. I'm going to support this person and try and help care for this person. And then you're immersed in that experience and you start to lose yourself. You can start to lose yourself. And I remember hearing over and over again, you know, you can't take care of someone else unless you take care of yourself first. I hate that phrase. <laughs> I, hate that phrase. I still hate that phrase because it's impossible. You know, it's impossible to, uh, to focus. Well, no, actually I can't say it's impossible because I was in some support groups where people were just like, I can't leave my life. And then they just went back to their lives and, you know, didn't become caregivers. I met some interesting people. I met some amazing people and some interesting people, <laughs> but it's, yeah, it's just, it's hard. It is very hard. And like you say, they, that is the thing they always tell you, take care of yourself because you can't take care of, of your loved one if you're not. But it's hard. But How you do you can, you can, right? You can, you can stop taking care of yourself and <laughs> take care of your loved one. It's not good, yeah. but you can, you know, because they're fighting for their life and you're not necessarily. Right. So, you know, if you as long as you eat and shower and, you know, get up every day, and do what you can for your loved one, you can. So it has to, I always felt like there has to be some middle ground. It can't just be, you know, that whole oxygen mask on a plane scenario. Your your loved one is like fighting for their life. And the idea of, you know, well, I'm gonna make sure I keep some normalcy in mind. It, it doesn't feel fair in those situations. It doesn't, it doesn't quite compute always either. You know, it just, yeah, I never liked that phrase at all. Yeah, I think when my dad was going through it, it was, we pretty much, everything revolved around my dad. Yeah. But it was such a short term, you know, a short time that, that life changed everything. You know, my, we put what my dad's needs were first, what my mom's needs were first. But with my mom's diagnosis, it was a little different because she survived longer. So, you know, that I think we did that in the beginning, but then as we saw, well, she's doing better, we were able to go back to the somewhat normal life where we could continue, you know, the, what the lifestyle we had before. So it makes a, a bit of a difference, but you did actually create a notebook for caregivers. Can you tell us a little bit about that? 
Yes. So um, we had a we had a particular evening when my mom was not doing well and she had a fever and she had all of these symptoms uh, after chemo and we were trying to figure out what was going on. And as I mentioned, you know, we had a lot of emergency room visits and I started, you know, I grabbed like a an envelope off of a table and started writing down everything that was happening and the timing of everything, trying to figure out if there was a pattern. And of course, as we're calling, you know, the doctor or the nurses and they want to know exactly what's happening, you know, I'm I'm tracking everything. I I tend to be a analytical person. <laughs> so I try to look at this information. And we got through that situation um in the end, but I remember thinking later, you know, we had these big bags that we'd bring with us to chemo, you know, like it's like a big bag full of like all the papers, all the notebooks that probably dates me. Like if everybody's using an app now to track stuff, but we, we had all this information, you know, that we, we track, you know, with the, with some medical records and, and other things. And I remember thinking like, it would be so much easier if, you know, there was something a little bit smaller, something where we could track everything and it would be organized. And so it was actually after she passed that I created the symptom management workbook, which is which is what this is. And it's something that the Hirschberg Foundation provides. And it has a section for nutrition. It has a section for um, symptoms and documenting things. Um, it's extremely organized and more detailed, I think, than anything I've seen out there. Um, and it's it's great for it's great for patients. I've heard some really good feedback. I mean, I haven't, I haven't really looked at it <laughs> recently, but Amy, our patient and family coordinator, support coordinator, uh, provides it to patients frequently and um, it does a lot of good. So I'm grateful for that. Yeah, I was going to ask you if it was still available because I actually did get it as well and use it. And I'm kind of like you, even though I do use the app, I also like to have something written because for me, <laughs> I'm so technically challenged sometimes <laughs> that I can't find, I, maybe I can't find it, but if it's also written, then I also have that copy. So that is yeah. something, can they get that through the Hirschberg Foundation? They can, they can, they can get that through the Hirschberg Foundation. They can call uh, Amy Reese at the Hirschberg Foundation. They can also visit our website at pancreatic.org. Um, and you can request it, you can purchase it. You, you should talk to Amy first though, because uh, she's the one that will help guide you and 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 figure out if this is something that would work really well for you. I'm a paper person, so that's why this worked for me. I'm a visual and paper person, but you know, sometimes an app will work. Uh, you just have to do what makes your situation more convenient for you. Yeah, it's like I said, whatever works for you is the best way to go. But I do use both. But like I said, sometimes it's just, I, I don't know if it's old school or what, maybe, but I just like being able to see something in print and not have yeah. to always go through an app. But I want to just ask you, I know it probably won't be the one thing, but what piece of advice or words of wisdom would you offer to caregivers who are just starting out or these, even some longtime caregivers out there? Don't give up. Don't give up on yourself. You know, you're obviously a caregiver because you you love the person that you're supporting, but don't give up on yourself. Uh, cut yourself slack because a lot of the time, because you're in this new normal, you can start grieving your past life or the life that's changing right before your eyes. And you have to cut yourself slack. I would say 
if you're struggling a lot, then then seek therapy possibly or a really great support group. I, I remember going to the cancer support community back in the day and I loved, you know, the group therapy. My sister was not about that. So it's not for everyone, but find something that works for you because talking and venting and, and working through those things is really important. You feel like you shouldn't be able to complain, but if you find someone that you can confide in and talk to and get those things off of your chest, you're able to navigate your day-to-day a little bit easier. Well, thank you for coming today and sharing your journey. Like I said, I know sometimes it can be very difficult for us to talk about our loved ones, especially when they're not here with us, but I think it's important to keep their memory alive and to keep what they went through and to always have them with us. And as long as you speak my name, I shall live forever is dedicated to Jane Dorr Banks and also her daughters and for being her caregivers, Sarah and Carmel. I want to thank you both for being, you know, the caregivers. Sometimes it's very difficult, but again, thank you for sharing your mom's story. And like I said, as long as we speak her name, she will live forever. Jane Dorr Banks. Thank you. I believe that. Thank you. there you have it one more reason to tune in each and every time to living hope a weekly journey designed to provide hope inspiration and education for those living with pancreatic cancer sharing the real life stories of those really affected by this deadly disease and how they deal with it on a daily basis and if you need some help there's lots of places to go check out one of them is the Hirschberg foundation go look them up And if you or anyone else you know wants to share your story, look us up here at OC Talk Radio, streaming live from our studios here at the University of California Irvine's Beale Applied Innovation Center.